Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Many important developments this past week in Israel, including high drama once more in Israeli politics, the Israeli government losing a crucial vote in the Knesset, continued fallout, at least in Washington, from the death of Shireen Abu Akleh, and why exactly is the Pentagon considering axing the most successful facet of the entire Israeli-Palestinian peace process? To help us break it all down, we have back with us again Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, and Research Director, Shira Efron. The big question on everyone's mind, can the Bennett-Lapid government survive? Let's get into it. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Neri. Hi, Shira. Hi, Neri. Hi, Michael. Thank you both for being with us once again today. I wanted to tackle a few distinct issues. Uh, We'll definitely get to the Israeli political news of the past week and what it may mean. Uh, We'll get into that in a second. But first, I wanted to delve into an issue near and dear to all of our hearts, the U.S. Security Coordinator mission to Israel and the Palestinian Authority. So for those listeners not aware, there is a three-star U.S. general that since 2005 sits in Jerusalem and coordinates between Israel and the Palestinians and also trains and advises the Palestinian Authority security forces. It is, I think, safe to say, by most measures, the most successful facet, definitely of the American contribution to this entire thing that we call the peace process. Capital P, capital P. Uh, But now we know that it may be in peril, that Congress has mandated that the U.S. military cut the number of generals and flag officers uh, it has all over the world. Apparently, the U.S. military is too top-heavy, with the USSC, as it's known, and the general leading the USSC, a real target for downsizing, um, possibly just to a colonel level. So, Michael, let's start with you. Why is this a really bad idea that we, I think all, uh, are opposed. This is a disaster. Um, you know that that idea. I think I think under <laughs> under undersells it. Um, you know this is a decision that was made during the Trump administration because in the 2017 NDAA, Congress mandated, as as you as you noted, cutting the number of general and flag officers, and so a list had to be made up of who was going to be cut. This was first done during the Trump administration. And I think um, from what I understand, uh, three secretaries of defense during the Trump administration declined to take the USSC off the list. Uh, And now we're in the Biden administration and they inherited this problem. And so far, the Biden administration has also declined to take the USSC off the cut list. And it's understandable why, particularly if you're just approaching this from a numbers perspective, you know we have a, a three-star general there, or the equivalent of a three-star general if it, if it comes from a different service, who oversees effectively 30 or 40 Americans uh, out of a mission of you know 80 or 90 people, um, and furthermore reports to the State Department. So if you're DOD and you got to cut somebody, you know this uh, it's understandable that this this would maybe even be the first thing to go. But it's been, as you noted, an incredibly successful mission and an incredibly successful position. And 
if you don't have a three-star general there, it's not going to be taken seriously by the Israelis. You're, you're not going to have a colonel in there who's going to get meetings with the IDF chief of staff. It's not going to be taken seriously by the Palestinians, who maybe even more than the Israelis are impressed by the rank. And this mission really is critical. If you want to, you know, Neri, you, you, you literally wrote the book, as, as, we, as we say all the time, on <laughs> the Palestinian Authority security forces. And this mission trains those guys and makes them more professional and helps make sure that they have the equipment that they need. And, you know, I've, over the past couple of years, I've spoken to multiple former U.S. security coordinators and multiple people who worked in the mission. And every single one of them stressed that a large part of the success is because of the rank, because of the three-star rank. Of every single person I spoke to who was either himself a U.S. security coordinator or who worked in that office, there was one who said, maybe if you're not going to expand the scope of the mission and, and give it even more prestige, maybe you downgrade it from a three-star to a two-star. But the notion that you push it down to Colonel, nobody even came close to suggesting that. And uh, not only do I think it will imperil the prestige of the mission, it will imperil U.S. leadership because other countries have generals that they send. You know, the Canadians have a brigadier general there. If we have a Colonel, then either we no longer lead the mission or they downgrade their, their ranks as well. And it's not just about the prestige of the mission. I think that there's a good chance that it, it leads to the end of the USSC mission entirely. I just don't think it's sustainable if you have a colonel there, given everything that's involved. So um, this is indeed a bad idea. I think it's disastrous. And uh, I think that um, people should be a lot more worried about this than they seem to be. Right. And we should also mention that the Canadians and the Brits uh, both have brigadier generals as part of this overall mission to the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority security forces. So yes, both of them will likely not keep brigadiers in country here reporting back to a U.S. colonel. Uh, Shira, what do you think? Yeah, um, no, thank you. This is a really important issue. Um, I agree with Michael. The access on both sides um, is first and foremost, um, uh, you know, has to do with the rank. A three-star general is equivalent to the Israeli chief of staff. Uh, it's hard to refuse, you know, a phone call, a meeting, uh, a pushback, a demand, and also, of course, on the Palestinian side, and sort of, and also the implications, what it would mean for um, the interaction uh, in the mission itself with with counterparts from other countries, and the possibility that they also have, you know, budgetary considerations, the own, uh, other bureaucracies, um, which would make them uh, lower their own ranks, uh, effectively basically effectively shutting down the USSC mission. Now, I will tell you, because there are some people here uh, also in Israel and Neri, uh, we've had these conversations also with people like, what's the big deal? Security coordination between Israelis and Palestinians considered. And I think, Neri, it's something that you said. I mean, of course, for the Israeli uh, head of Shin Bet to pick up the phone to Majid Fard, uh, head of uh, Palestinian Security Services, yeah, not a big deal. They don't need a USSC. Uh, they don't need a three-star to do this. But there are other things about the Palestinian security forces that require um, leadership. Uh, we'll give, maybe I'll just give you uh, two examples. First of, of all, there was a, a call for proposals that was issued 
I think six months ago or so by the State Department, INL, uh, to look into how to reform the Palestinian security forces. Neri, you wrote the book. They have a lot of problems. It's uh, top-heavy. Mm-hmm. There's corruption, uh, inverted pyramid structures, no uh, command and control. There are a lot of issues there. Um, if this reform is important for uh, Israeli security interests, for Palestinian security interests, for keeping the West Bank stable at its, as, as it has been uh Thanks to uh, the, the the successful, uh, you know, this is all the success of the USSC work. Um, this reform will not happen without uh, a U.S. push. So that's the one thing. The second thing, and that's that's sort of a new idea that we're also exploring at Israel Policy Forum. Um, as 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 you know, there's been uh, the the source of of violence and terrorism coming from the West Bank has or, originated mostly in the Janine area, and there's this idea of creating another brigade, there are currently uh, nine brigades uh, in the West Bank, and there's an idea of having a 10th brigade that would draw on the refugee camp of Janine, um, where it would also align, match the Palestinian security forces with, with, with the population size, which increased substantially since they were created, and also to be more commensurate with the challenges that have also evolved. But if you create a new brigade, <laughs> whether it's from Janine or not, but any change to the force, any addition to the force would require uh, work on command and control, uh, structures, equipment, training, training in in another country, Mm -hmm. possibly Jordan. You cannot do that without a U.S. lead. And and I'm I'm sorry to say, it doesn't look like there's another country that would jump and fill in this. So it's not just the axis. It's, It's bigger. Um, and as Michael said, I think it's a catastrophe and it's really a shame that because of a bureaucratic, what, what comes now to a bureaucratic issue in the Pentagon, um, this critical mission would be closed down. And in this timing, the timing is crazy, right? For a long time, West Bank was relatively quiet. We're, we're under whether it's a wave of terrorism or not a wave, but clearly things are, 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 are tense now. So to do it now, to me, seems like uh, just, just, just a disaster. And I know for a fact that there are a lot of people in the U.S. government that thinks they they think like us, and they've issued warnings um, and raised mm-hmm. the the alarm bells uh, all over. And and I hope this will work because otherwise the whole thing can go down uh, later this year. And, and just to jump in on something Shira said about the timing, so certainly the timing of this, given the uptick in violence in the West Bank, is not good. But the timing also is strange because I know we're going to get to this later in the podcast, but President Biden is supposed to be coming over to Israel um, and the West Bank at some point in July. And if this decision doesn't get reversed, then I, I, you know, from, from what I hear, there's a good possibility that the current USSC, General Fenzel, will actually be heading back to the United States early at some point over the summer. So to do this and have this come out ahead of Biden's visit or, you know, even while Biden is there, um, it's just it's such a strange mixed message. You know, on the one hand, here's the president for probably the only trip to Israel and the Palestinian Authority during his term. And oh, by the way, the most successful aspect of U.S. engagement with Israel and the Palestinians, certainly on security, uh, we're going to downgrade right now. The, the timing of it is just, um, it, it couldn't be worse, I, I think, on, on many different fronts. 
Yeah, I obviously find myself in violent agreement with both of you. Uh, just for clarification, NDAA, I think that's the National Defense Authorization Act. It's uh, yes. essentially the congressional bill that funds the U.S. military. And INL is uh, basically the State Department department that funds the USSC. Uh, it does a lot of uh, kind of police training, anti-narcotics uh, programs all around the world. So that's officially the the department that funds the USSC, just for clarification's sake for our listeners, a lot of acronyms and abbreviations. So obviously it would be, like you said, a disaster to downgrade the USSC. Uh, I also, when I was back in Washington, heard the same sentiments from a lot of parts of the US government. Uh, it is quite interesting that despite near unanimity that this would be a really bad idea, that it hasn't it hasn't gotten taken off the table that this might actually still happen uh, due to decisions I think at the highest levels of of the Pentagon really. So I think it's also important to I guess explain what the USSC has done and why we keep saying it might be the most successful part of the peace process. Really, for a decade plus, uh, really the USSC was created in two thousand five. As we all know, but it really got going in 2009, 8, 9. And what you had uh, under U.S. auspices and this U.S. general sitting in Jerusalem was a reconstitution and retraining and revamping of the entire Palestinian Authority security forces in the West Bank, right? It's not just a U.S. mission, like we said, it's international, the Europeans are involved, the Canadians, Brits, and so on and so forth, but really led by the Americans. And really over the past decade, with this new and revamped Palestinian Authority security forces, uh, the security situation in the West Bank, night and day different, night and day better than what it was even in the heyday of the Oslo Accords, the 1990s, definitely better in terms of security than obviously the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. And so you've seen these revamped security forces work in tandem with the Israeli security forces to uphold what we call security coordination. And like Shira rightfully said, the Israelis and Palestinians don't need the Americans to uphold security coordination. They're fully capable and, and do talk between themselves. But you need somebody in the middle who, when problems arise, I think, uh, and when the situation becomes a bit, a bit more unstable, to coordinate and send messages between the two. And to essentially have this kind of third party looking at what's actually happening on the ground and dealing with the principles here on the ground. And then I think almost as important, the USSC reports back, at least officially, to the Secretary of State, right? Uh, can't have a colonel sitting in Jerusalem uh, picking up the phone to the Secretary of State back in Washington. Um, and just by way of anecdote, uh, and we'll get into this in a second, after the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, the one US official that was trying to mediate between the Israeli military and the Palestinian security forces and leadership in Ramallah uh, in terms of a joint investigation and trying to essentially figure out how best to move forward. Uh, wasn't the U.S. ambassador in Jerusalem. Uh, it wasn't various State Department officials. It was actually the U.S. general, uh, the security coordinator in Jerusalem playing that role because he's on the ground and he already has those relationships with both security establishments, both in Israel and the Palestinians. So... That's just one example uh, of many, but uh, yeah, I think uh, 
I think we're all in agreement that this would be a really bad idea and a step backwards, really, for U.S. engagement uh, in Israel-Palestine. And listen, it's, it's a strange arrangement because you have a uniformed officer reporting back to the State Department and the entire thing is funded by uh, another bureau within the State Department that otherwise doesn't have any operational say over what the USSE is doing. So, you know, one, one bureau is funding this. Um, it's DOD personnel not reporting to DOD. It, it's, a, it's a strange animal. And I think that there's a great argument to be made that it should be the, the, way, the way it is the way it is funded and, and the way it is staffed maybe should um, be more done independently. You know, maybe maybe there should be a separate a separate fund just for USSC that would that would make it more more sustainable and more independent. But to, to downgrade it, um, just, you know, and particularly downgrade it, um, given how effective it is, it just makes no sense at all. Um, and and I, I hope, really hope that uh, people at the highest levels are listening to what they're hearing from people who work on Israel-Palestine, because, you know, again, from the outside, you take this, this really strange strange amalgamation of things and you say this is a great thing to cut um but it's really not a good thing to cut at all well we know that the highest levels of the u.s and other governments listen to this podcast so <laughs> i think the message is the message is coming across right obviously you know secretary austin come on you know you're you're, you're obviously listening and and take our advice please <laughs> yeah uh shira any wrap-up thoughts on the ussc or have we covered everything no i i i think i think we've covered Everything. Um, I just hope um, there's enough sense in everyone to to um, to overcome this. What seems to be a bureaucratic hurdle. Yeah, uh, essentially a budgetary and bureaucratic hurdle. Yep. Uh, I think also the Israelis, uh, as well as the Palestinians, but especially the Israelis, uh, need to weigh in on this issue and to explain to folks back in Washington, uh, especially the Congress, why this mission is important to them. I think that would also be helpful. Right. And we know that it matters, um, especially what the Israeli defense establishment uh, tells Washington, right? If Israeli uh, defense minister or chief of staff or someone of high rank would say, listen, this is important for Israeli security, uh, that would make a difference. And Israel knows not to take things as a fait accompli, that Israel can influence things. We've seen this in the past. We've seen this with the uh, sort of the, the MFO, the mission in um, the Sinai Peninsula with Egypt, you know, sort of the peacekeeping mm -hmm. forces uh, where Israel weighed in and affected a U.S. decision. Uh, I want to add more details, but Israel has, has leverage. Um, and I hope they understand that that they have the leverage, they should use it. And uh, granted, there are a lot of security, uh, shared security uh, interests and threats to speak about. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> um, I hope, you know, and, and, and you know this um, as well, there, there's, there are visits of US, Israeli officials in Washington all the time. Uh, but between the conversations on Iran, this is one that this, this one deserves uh, a serious conversation also. Yeah. And as we saw in recent weeks, uh, one major flare-up or little flare-up even in the West Bank or Jerusalem uh, lands at the highest levels uh, on desks in Washington and 
the the foreign press and international media uh, cover it very closely. Uh, I'm obviously referring to the tragic death of Shirin Abouakleh, which we just mentioned, um, and by the way, her funeral uh, in Jerusalem two days later, which uh, I addressed last week with Adam Razgon. Uh, I think the less said about that, the better. Um, Michael, really quickly, I wanted to get your sense from Washington about how the death of Shireen is still being viewed. Uh, we know that uh, various uh, senators have issued a letter uh, demanding a, a full U.S. investigation. Um, what What is the sense? Does it still reverberate both in Washington and in the American Jewish community, the events of, uh, I think, three weeks ago? Absolutely. People, people are concerned about it. it. It's a combination of the fact that she was an American citizen and uh, the fact that she was high profile. And uh, as, as you referenced this, this letter, there was a, a letter released earlier this week um, from Senator John Ossoff, who's a Democrat, and Senator Mitt Romney, who is a Republican. And, uh, you know, they called for um, the U.S. to ensure that there is a full and transparent investigation. And, um, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't say... Um, they didn't say in their letter which which side they think needs to do that, whether it's the Israelis, the Palestinians, or both. But uh, you know, I, I think the point here is that this is the second high-profile death in a in a few months of a Palestinian who had U.S. citizenship. Um, the first one being Omar Assad uh, a few months ago, um, and the elderly Palestinian man who. Uh, was stopped at a checkpoint in the West Bank and uh, beaten and essentially left in the cold. Right, and yeah. you know there eventually died. Right, and, you know, and so right, he was he was handcuffed, left 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 in a corner in the cold. You know, IDF troops found him uh, dead a couple of hours later, um, and there too there were calls immediately from the administration and from Congress for there to be a full and transparent investigation. And I, I think that um, the, US has, uh, the, the U.S. has been left disappointed um, in there actually being a full and transparent investigation of what happened. And so you know, then you have uh, a few months later another American citizen who is killed in the West Bank. And um, I, I think the fact that there has, there's still lingering dissatisfaction about investigation into Omar Assad's death is contributing here now for repeated calls. You know, we've seen from the House and now we've seen from the Senate and we constantly see it from the State Department podium for there to be an investigation here too. And I don't think it's going to go away. Um, you know, the, the Palestinians uh, are, are pushing it. I, I think we've seen other, given her profile, uh, you know, there have been calls from uh, other Arab states as well for there to be an investigation. And obviously it's difficult. You know, the, the Israelis have, can conduct whatever they conduct. The Palestinians can conduct whatever they can, they can conduct. There doesn't seem to be any real cooperation between the two sides. Um, the IDF says that they're, you know, they have, they have a gun that may have, may have fired, but they can't tell without the bullet. The Palestinians say that they're not going to hand the bullet over. Um, you know, nobody here trusts anybody else. And certainly the U.S. itself, I don't think, really wants to be deeply involved in this um, in any way, shape or form. It's just it's just a headache. But 
calls for an independent and transparent investigation are going to continue. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that for the administration and, and many members of Congress, um, when they're making those calls, they're really talking to the Israelis more than they are to the Palestinians, um, given that there are higher expectations and a higher standard of Israel. Um, so this isn't this mm -hmm. isn't going away anytime soon. Okay, and we should say for the record that the IDF still has not concluded its investigation. Uh, they issued a preliminary report, I think, about two weeks ago, uh, but we have yet to hear what their final conclusions are. Yeah, uh, but they but they say that without cooperation from, you know, the Palestinian Authority, uh, it would be hard to have a final conclusion. Um, I think. Yeah. The idea, that, yeah. That. No, I was going to say that's fine. You don't have to definitively say that this or that happened, but like I got into it with uh, Adam Razgon last week, at least give us more evidence that there was actually a gunfight in that alleyway and more evidence, because we know for a fact that at least one Israeli shoulder, soldier shot in the general direction of Shireen and the other group of journalists. So at least try to explain or endeavor to provide more evidence of what that soldier was actually shooting at. Yeah, my, my, my understanding, and again, nothing, you know, formal, but that there are, there are certainly um, acknowledgement on the Israeli side that she could have died as a result of Israeli fire. <laughs> um, and yeah. I don't know, you know, if, how forthcoming they're going to be about it without sort of the final evidence. I don't think there's an effort to sort of prove them um, innocent of that. I think there's a concern on the Israeli side that even if, you know, IDF is implicated in the death itself, that it would go, could get uh, personal. Uh, it would get to the actual shooter. And then we're mm -hmm. going on the, you know, in, going to Hague International you know, criminal court. Uh, where can this, where can this escalate? So I think the considerations right. on the Israeli side are not just 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 that, but where can it go? Um, I will tell you that there is a sense here, at least in a conversation I had yesterday in discussion, that this sort of is an issue they would like to put behind, and I'm not sure there is a deep understanding of 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 how, as Michael said, and you, and you know uh, Neri very, very well, um, that this, this issue in Washington is not going to go away. Uh, it's not just the journalist, as you said, they found the wrong journalist to deal with, and I think also the wrong network. And of course, it's, it's we, we shouldn't make these comparisons to Jamal Khashoggi, there was, you know, intentional murder, whatever this, but, you know, it's also, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the incident itself, but it's also the persona. Mm-hmm. Um, she was high profile. She knew everyone. She knew many Israelis who really liked her. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, and it's, she was an American and she was an American and she was American and she was, you know, and she was a fight. I mean, a fighter in a sense, she was like a real journalist, right? She, she was, and she criticized everyone and she, she was, she, she, you know, it's, it's, it's really just, just tragic. Um, there is, um, uh, I don't. I don't think it's anecdotal, but the, uh, there's evidence now that Hamas is sort of trying to push female journalists into the front lines. That they believe this is a, a more effective, sadly, than a Palestinian youth. That it draws a lot of attention. 
preferably with foreign mm. uh, foreign passports. So this is could be another another issue that's sort of like uh, and there I saw this um, uh, cartoon and it's like oh another day another journalist and the IDF soldier in the the cartoon sh- shooting at her says uh, but you started. Um, so this is also something to think about. Is this something that we're going to see that we're going to try to see more? Right. Uh, abrupt transition. Uh, we have to talk about the dramatic week, so to speak, in Israeli politics this past week. Um, I think this one is actually, actually qualifies as dramatic. Uh, as some of you may have heard this past Monday, a bill in Knesset meant to extend Israeli civil law over Israeli citizens living in the West Bank, uh, i.e. the settlers. Uh, this bill didn't pass. Uh, this law has been routinely passed and extended every five years or so since 1967. Uh, it was never really an issue until recently uh, in passing it. Uh, important to note, Bibi Netanyahu marshaled the entire opposition to vote against that's right, against this bill. So you had Likud and religious Zionism and the two ultra-Orthodox parties all voting against the bill that, in theory, serves their own constituencies in the West Bank. Uh, we should mention this bill allows settlers to vote, allows settlers to take out an Israeli ID card, allows Israel police to police uh, the West Bank towns and settlements, basically regulating all in everyday life in the West Bank for Israeli citizens. Um, and Bibi marshaled the opposition to topple this bill, all for the goal of embarrassing and weakening the Bennett-Lapid government, who, on the flip side, uh, had all of its left-wing and centrist components, like labor and merits, uh, voting for the bill that would extend Israeli civil law to Israeli citizens in the West Bank. Um, the deadline for when this bill actually needs to pass is the end of this month. And the coalition says that it'll try again to pass the bill uh, maybe as early as next week. Uh, still very unclear to my mind that they can marshal the votes. Uh, so passage of this bill, uh, I think, is still really, really uncertain. So the first question for you both, just on the substance, um, it is interesting that for the first time in a long time, we had this very public debate in Israel uh, with the reality that Israelis living in the West Bank don't actually live in Israel. Uh, Shira, what did you think of this really, I guess, unorthodox and unique debate in terms of the Israeli public conversation? Do you think this kind of debate has longer legs or will have a longer-term impact? You know, I hope so. Um, I don't... I'm I'm not sure. It depends if this uh, dispute uh, resolves in the next uh, week or so or by the end of the month, as you said, which would be the deadline or if this leads to uh, the coalition outbreak and going to elections, and then, uh, uh, ironically, then Likud and and, and uh, Zionism and the Haredi parties would vote for it, and then we will forget it ever that this thing ever happened, maybe until next five years from now, when we'll, this vote would be required, the bill would be required uh, for extending it again. Um, mm-hmm. But it is very interesting, and I think even, you know, me working for, for you know, IPF, and thinking that this disputed territory, right? We have a position on on settlements. We believe in a Palestinian state, uh, but until the Israeli government makes a decision, the Israeli citizens living there—not the land itself—but the Israeli citizens there should be eligible for Israeli services, right? I mean, 
we started thinking about is what are the real implications of this? And the fact is we don't know because it's since 1967, right? So we have no idea. But think of, you know. Never happened. Never happened. A car accident happens. Can Israeli police go there? Can they not go there? Can you uh, <laughs> resolve the issue in court? Uh, this this really goes to the heart of people's lives. And, you know, the, the land is disputed, but what's on the land, I'm not talking about real estate and homes, that this is, you know, the construction, but, but the people themselves, um, and there are a lot of them. So I think it's really interesting, not as a sort of intellectual exercise, but it's also interesting to understand what would be the real implications of, of this. And also, I think, uh, tragically, it also has uh, implications for um, the survival chances of this government, uh, which started looking really bad uh, in the past few months. Uh, right. But this seems like, I, I wouldn't call it a straw because it's a really, really big issue. It's a big issue for uh, the Ram, you know, the, the left in the party and, and you know, of course, um, the Ram party. But it's also a very big issue for Justice Minister Gidon Saar, uh, for Ayala Chiked, for the right. Um, and you said it's a dramatic week. I think it's a psychotic week. How? <laughs> <laughs> what's happening? Uh, the right in Israel oh. votes against their interests. The left, you know, puts the kosher stamp on the settlements. There's all these like poker game with with all these like players in the Israeli government, Edith Salman, and all these others that who even knew they existed a month or two months ago. Uh, Hold that they, thought. Yeah. We're gonna. Sorry, go ahead. We're gonna get in. <laughs> we're gonna get into the politics of it all uh, in just a second. But yes, uh, psychotic would be a good way to put uh, the events of this past Monday night when really you had, you know, settler politicians saying they're not voting for this bill that really regulates everyday life for their constituents. And you had left-wing uh, parliamentarians saying, you know, we have to pass this bill. So yes, up is down, down is up, and so on and so forth. Michael, what did you think of the drama of the past week? It's... It's completely, completely loopy. Um, and I just, I, I think it's maybe the best sign yet of the nihilism that has really overtaken the opposition. I, I mean, you know, you have, you have the Yesha Council leaders begging the opposition to vote for this bill because of the consequences for Israelis who are living in settlements. And um, you know, it's like, it, it's just nothing, nothing, nothing matters, right? It, you know, is no, nothing substantive is, is important enough um, to overcome wanting to get rid of the government. Um, and, you know, this is just the, the starkest example of that. Um, it's interesting to me that it's on this issue because there were also reports this week that uh, in order for any visa waiver program to go through between the United States and Israel, um, there's going to have to be a vote on that in the Knesset that the government will bring up. And there was a report this week that all the Haredi parties say that for that one, they're going to vote with the government um, because, you know, too, it's too important to, to their Haredi constituents to be able to go to the U.S. <laughs> so, you know, apparently there isn't a blanket boycott of government votes. So, you know, why, why this one is deemed to be um, an absolute red line that nobody can cross but others are not, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a good question. Because they know that for visa waivers, the coalition may actually be able to muster a majority, maybe. And that uh, a bill having to do with 
settlers and settlements in the West Bank, a lot more controversial. And uh, like you said, for Bibi Netanyahu's opposition, the ends justify the means. And they said, you know, while we care deeply about settlers and their everyday life in the West Bank, uh, the higher goal, the higher mission is to topple this very bad government in their minds. Um, and they said it outwardly uh, before the vote in the Knesset on Monday night. Um, we should just mention for our listeners, the Yesha Council is this uh, kind of umbrella political uh, group for, for the West Bank settlers. And Ram is the Arab-Israeli Islamist party that is very much, at least for now, part of the Israeli governing coalition. Um, let's get into the, the brass tacks of the politics behind why this bill didn't pass. Uh, basically, one MK from this Ram party uh, voted against, and another MK from the Merits party uh, voted against. And Edith Silman, the now very well-known renegade MK from Naftali Bennett's own Yamina party that defected in April and started this entire uh, political drama and chaos, uh, only abstained because it was very clear that the bill wasn't uh, going to pass because of those two other MKs voting against. Uh, and there was a lot of anger within the coalition at these two uh, renegade uh, parliamentarians uh, that happened to be Arab-Israeli as well. Uh, so Mazen Ganayem was the Ram MK and Raida Rinawi Zoabi was the Meretz MK, both Arab-Israelis. Uh, everyone seems to forget that this entire trouble in terms of the numbers and passing laws in the Knesset had to do really with Edith Silman, who uh, was flitting around the Knesset Monday night, chatting to everybody, big smile on her face, wouldn't tell anybody whether she was going to vote against or for, uh, a true, true agent of chaos. Um, so basically the coalition only had about 58 MKs uh, in the 120-seat Knesset and uh, didn't have a majority, obviously. Um, Shira, what do you think, big picture? Uh, do you think that the, the anger directed at the Arab-Israeli MKs and really at the Ram party, uh, saying, you know, this experiment, this grand experiment in Arab-Jewish political cooperation in this one coalition uh, was a failure? And that, at least in certain right-wing minds, uh, it can't work. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I think this is all twisted. It, 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 the right-wing mm -hmm. should be upset at the heads of the right-wing parties because they failed them on this because you you know it's not just your own narrow political interests there are your uh supposedly right values <laughs> and constituents and 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 this is a right wing issue um so i think the, the, the anger should be directed at them uh, also as you noted Edith Silman, there's a failure in the coalition heads um you know the the problem is the prime minister doesn't have a base um that they uh, let their guard off. Uh, it's it's uh, Edith Silman, but also in merits, there are all these renegades uh, who are not showing uh, coalitionary uh, discipline. But we see that in the Jewish parties, um, there are also issues uh, with discipline. Um, and uh, with Ram, which you would argue makes at least on an ideological basis, most sen sense that, you know, they would abstain from voting on this, on this issue. 
Um, the anger should not be um, uh, targeted at them because it hadn't been for Edith Silman uh, without knowing, as, as you point out, uh, no one knew what she was going to do. <laughs> Had they known that she's just going to abstain, they could have they could have done something something different. Uh, the problem is that the, the, the sort of a bait and switch kind of you know system and 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 and, and um, it's like a game theory, uh, right? Prisoner's dilemma. What are you going to do? Who's going to do what? <laughs> How do you calculate your actions based on others? Um, in terms of the success of the you know, Ram being in the coalition and having an Arab party in the coalition. What I've been hearing is that it's been so successful in terms of achievements. Of course, not everything is perfect. We were talking about one year to this government. Uh, there's been a reduction, uh, you know, in crime, uh, budgets that have been approved, uh, uh, narrowing some gaps, approvals that uh, I've heard that there's, there's talk that the coalition needs to hide some of these achievements, that they don't look too pro-Arab. Um, so in a sense, I do believe that, and I hope, uh, I, I hope I'm not wrong on this, that the experiment is not, um, is not a failure. It, it is successful. The problem is that if Rom is not, can demonstrate enough achievements and we are going to go to elections, uh, really soon, they might not pass the threshold. Because they're not popular, they, they receive, they have, they're exposed to a lot of criticism from Palestinians, but also from uh, is you know Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, their own constituents. And um, I've heard of an internal poll yesterday, and these polls are not not very reliable. It's hard to poll, but but that they they, they may not uh, be able to enter the Knesset if there's elections right now. So, uh, and this and this could be the fail, the real failure. If, uh, if if they're not included uh, in the future. Uh, but but I think the criticism uh, has been really unjustified uh, from the right, from their own constituents, of course, from the Palestinians. You know, Hamas uh, it, it targets uh, Mansour Abbas more than they target uh, Mahmoud Abbas now. Um, and he, if I may say, I think he, he showed such leadership uh, over the past year, uh, really uh, being exposed to tremendous, tremendous, tremendous external and internal pressure and working for his, his constituency. Um, so so I, I don't think it's deserved, but of course he's also a politician and his party also, there are politicians. He has his own uh, issues with uh, Mazen Ganaim, uh, one, one of the sort of defectors who is not even from the Ram party um, and wants to be a mayor of Sakhnin, a big city, so he has other considerations in mind, what he can vote on, what he can not vote on. Uh, but then, uh, but but then, you know, if 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 everyone is going for, you know, if if this government is is doomed, uh, why would they keep playing ball? Should they be the only ones? Should they be held to a different standard than others? Um, I don't think that's fair. Michael, what were your uh, at least tentative conclusions of the political? crisis, I think there's no other word for it, uh, of the past two months, which really reached ahead a few days ago here in the Knesset. I agree with Shira. It's wild that people are blaming Arab MKs or Ra'am for this bill failing. You have, you have you know, tens of right-wing votes in the opposition who voted against it. And the notion that they somehow should be off the hook because they're in the opposition. 
um, and it's really the fault of the Arab MKs that that this didn't pass um, is is just nuts. Uh, second, it's it's really strange to me that Gidon Sa'ar turned this into such a doomsday vote. As you noted before, this has passed every five years since 1967. And this time around, Gidon Saar turned it into this huge high profile issue that was guaranteed to get lots of attention, that was guaranteed to make it polarizing, that was guaranteed to turn it into this big test for the government, as opposed to trying to do it, not that it was going to pass unnoticed, but you know, as opposed to trying to lower the stakes a bit rather than raise them. And, you know, that in itself, I think, almost made it a fait accompli that it wasn't going to work, at least on the first time. And, you know, what does he do now? If he, he, he portrayed this as his red line and that if this can't happen, then there's no reason for the government to exist. Well, he's got two choices then. One is to form an alternative government with Likud and Bibi Netanyahu, and remember that this is this 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 was his his old red line, right? He'll do anything except for sit in the government with Bibi. And the other thing he can do is go to elections. Whereas new poll that's out this morning shows, and it's been like this now for months, that his party Tikva Chadasha, New Hope, um, is either right at the threshold or won't make the next Knesset. Mm-hmm. So. I just I, I don't understand what he thought his play was here, um, and maybe he really thought that turning it into a, a big pressure situation and a high profile vote would get it uh, get it to to a majority. If that's the case, he he badly misread, and and you know we talked we talked before about uh, you know people uh, pe- people people who, who climb up into into trees and then don't have a ladder to, to come back down. I, I don't um, I don't I don't quite see how Gidon Saar now gets out from, you know, the very high and far limb that he's climbed out onto. And then the last thing I'll say is, if I'm somebody who is really dedicated to annexation of the West Bank, this is now the perfect time to bring it up. Because particularly if they can't pass this by the end of June and all of the catastrophic daily, uh, daily impacts happen for Israelis who are living in the West Bank, then the next argument becomes, we can't ever risk this happening again. You know, time, time to time to annex all of these places formally, so that we don't have to deal with this. Uh, and so, I do worry that um, this entire stunt is going to put annexation back on the table in in a real way. Um, you know, pushed by Bibi and Ben Gvir and uh, all the usual suspects. Despite the assurances that Bibi gave the Emiratis a couple yeah. years ago. Yes, yes. Despite, despite those assurances, which you can, you can write them on, you can write them on ice. <laughs> Netanyahu's assurances, uh, not the not the greatest coin in the realm. Mm. I think right. I think that's uh, I think that's a that's a, that's a charitable. And by the description. way, it's not just Netanyahu. <laughs> we need to remember the initial annexation plan of Area C came from who's now Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Uh, we know Gideon Sars' view. So I mean, Correct. this is also right an unintended consequence of this. That Michael's right when you said like if when going back to full circle to your first question, the debate on the fact that those people don't live in Israel. So let's make it Israel. That that could be the flip side of it, right? Yeah, I think I think that almost certainly is what's going to happen next. I, I just don't see a way around it. I don't know if annexation will happen, but this is a good transition to our look ahead. And my favorite question, will the Bennett-Lapid government survive? Now, 
survive, I think, is a relative concept. Uh, their entire mission in life right now is just to make it to the end of July and the end of this Knesset session and the summer break. Uh, and then the Knesset only comes back, I think, after the Jewish high holidays, so in around October. So this is this is what they're striving for at the moment, uh, survival until the end of July. But then you have this kind of competing timeline, which is precisely this bill, and it's an expiration at the end of this month. So my fear is that these two competing timelines will actually uh, work against each other, that at a certain point, if they if the government can't pass this bill, you'll see various parts of the coalition from the right wing uh, actually actually make uh, very far-reaching decisions, I think, to uh, to defect and maybe dissolve Knesset and go to early elections. Uh, and by the way, I don't think this will come from Gidon Saar. Uh, if anybody, I, I don't I don't recommend it, but if anybody actually listened to the speeches by Gidon Saar and uh, his other MKs before this vote on Monday night, uh, they were they were very very harsh and very very critical uh, against Bibi in particular. So I think even for them, the the option, let's say, of an alternative government in this Knesset led by Bibi, uh, you know, never say never in Israeli politics, but it it would almost kind of beggar belief just based on their own rhetoric a few days ago. Uh, I think the more likely culprits will be from Naftali Bennett's own Yamina party. Uh, so Yalit Shaked and two other MKs from Yamina uh, have been uh, very quiet over the past week. Um, you know, every day I kind of wake up expecting one of them to actually declare that this was the straw that broke the camel's back and that they can no longer go on with this, uh, with this experiment and that they're defecting. Just like Edith Zimon did in April, out of the blue. Um, that's that's my best. So Neri, what's the guess? guess? Does it survive uh, till summer session? What's your bet? I don't see it. And 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 by the way, I think I was on this very podcast with you both. Uh, I think a few weeks ago, where we had the same discussion: Will the government survive or not? And I think I was a lot more pessimistic uh, than my two esteemed guests. Uh, and I, I think I have to go back and listen to the recording. The edited but I, I recording. I think I said, you know, that yeah, yeah, you know, we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll find it, we'll find it, and then we'll just air it uh, at the top of this, of this podcast, of this episode on a loop. Uh, right. Our conversation a few weeks ago, where I said, you know, all kidding aside, that you'll have these tensions between the right wing and the left wing, that the right is pulling right, and the left will have to kind of try to counterbalance that. And I think we saw exactly that on Monday with these. Uh, the MK from Rom and the MK from Meretz being like, okay, I, you know, I can't vote for this bill. Um, but uh, what do you, let's start with you, Michael. Uh, has your opinion shifted? Have you become more pessimistic about the... So if my recollection is, is correct, uh, I, I think the last time I said that the government was going to make it till the fall. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's still an outside chance of that. I mean, if it, you know, if, if, if they call for new elections, in a month and there'll be elections in the fall and you know um and i'll be i'll, I'll be i'll be off by, by a couple of months um but I, I just i don't see i don't see how this government sticks around i think that you're you're correct it's going to be ayala chaked uh near orbach and abir kara who, who jump um you know three uh, three mks from yamina and um uh, yeah, I just I, I don't see I don't see how how this continues, and it's it's a shame because 
this government leave aside whatever your politics are and you know i think um i think it's i think it's probably safe to say that all three of us are uh, bigger fans of this government than we were of the previous government that whatever your politics are this government did put an end to the never-ending elections it was able to pass a budget um it was able to build this unprecedentedly broad coalition it was it was able to actually do a number of important things and, and get some important accomplishments and you know in, in another few weeks it's going to be uh the one-year mark for this government and it's just you know i think i think we all we all knew from the beginning that there was a timer on this government it was certainly not going to last its full term i think all of us were skeptical that it was ever going to even get to the handoff uh to yair lapid to become prime minister um although if if it is these Amina MKs who do bring down the government, Lapid will be interim prime minister. Um, but you know, it always it always had an expiration date, and I just wish that the expiration date um, could be pushed off a little farther because I don't think it's going to be good for anybody to bring back the the unresolvable election cycles and the intense polarization that comes with these election campaigns. And certainly, um, I don't think it is going to be good for Israel to have any type of government that includes uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir and religious Zionism, which, as of this morning, is polling as the third largest party in the Knesset if there are new elections. So um, I would, you know, for many reasons, like to see this government stick around for longer, but I, I don't think it's in the cards. Shira, what do you think? Right. I mean, I mean, I agree. I think we, you know, again, you can go back and listen to the raw, raw recording of this podcast from a few weeks ago. Um, I don't think that we were, you know, as 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 optimistic, but no one could have um, anticipated this ludicrous situation with with this bill that who knew that even got extended every five years. Right. And that would be an issue and that the right wing parties in Israel would vote against it. But um but but you're seeing uh, it's not it's not just the parties themselves. You're also seeing uh, uh, the, around the prime minister, uh, the, his closest advisors are jumping ship. It started with Shimrit Meir, uh, the diplomatic advisor, and then I think it's we're at number at the senior advisor number four now. Four. Um, yeah. As Shimrit said in in Hebrew, it's like a nigmar, which is sort of like military jargon to. Uh, the 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 story is over, um, the you know the sort of event is over. So I think this is also an indication that things are very, uh, very unstable, and it's a shame for all the reasons that Michael uh, indicated. And thinking of the alternative, uh, but but you know even if Itamar Benvir doesn't make it into the Knesset, which which under current you know current projections, this is a very likely scenario that he would. But even in the event that you can make another sort of more normal government, that could take a long time again. You can get into spiral of elections. Again, you won't have budgets. You can't uh, uh, pave roads. You can't uh, budget the education system here, which, you know, as a mother to young children, it's a catastrophe. You have no teachers. You just have no teachers. You have no, mm -hmm. there's a new chief of staff that needs to be appointed in January. I mean, this can happen without a government, but it's going to be very difficult to do. There's an MOU that needs to be prepared, right? The Memorandum of Understanding with Israel and the U.S. on 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 sort of U.S. assistance to Israel. Like, who's going to do these things without a government? Uh, the cost of living in this in this country is, is is sky high. There's world, you know, global inflation. I mean, you need a functioning government and sort of 
there's a sliding scale of how bad that could be, right? It could be just like just just not having a government. Or you can have a government where, I don't know, Itamar Benvir is the Minister of Interior. And both are really bad options. So uh, so I do hope it survives, but I think, um, uh, you know, our hopes um, are not are not an action plan. Our hopes aren't an action plan, and unfortunately, the Israeli public does not listen to us. So at least half, at least half the Israeli public thinks uh, thinks uh, that I suppose uh, Bibi Netanyahu-led far-right government uh, is a better option than what's gone on here over the past year. Uh, and obviously, we we three may uh, may disagree with that. Uh, I think we should end there. We were going to talk about the upcoming visit to the region of U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, but that has been pushed from later this month to next month to July. So I think uh, next time you both are on, we'll, uh, we'll delve deep into Joe Biden coming to Israel and Palestine and what that means and what that looks like. Uh, but for now, I think, I think that was good. Michael, Shira, thank you as always. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Shira. Thank you, Neri. Thank you, Michael. Okay, that was Michael Coplo and Shira Efron. Many thanks to them, as always, for their expert analysis and their generous time. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember, and this is important, to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening.